Well, brethren, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 9. We're going to be looking together at verses 32 through 43. You can find this on page 918 in your pew Bible. And before we read the Word of the Lord, let's ask our Heavenly Father to give us understanding. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we come before You acknowledging our need of Your Word to direct our steps, to counsel us, to teach us the things that we are to believe concerning You. And yet we also acknowledge while Your Word is the truth, we in our sin fail to see the truth. And Your Spirit must enlighten us in the knowledge of, the, of our God. And we pray that Your Spirit would work in us now. That You would teach us and instruct us rebuke and correct us, train us in righteousness, that we would be fitted through Your Word for Your service. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Holy Word? Again, Acts 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Thus far, God's Word, and may He be praised through it. Brethren, please be seated. Well, in Luke's chronicle of the Acts of Christ, which we've been studying in this book, as he grows his church through the Spirit's work in the apostles, we've seen now two phases of gospel progress. Jesus' name has been preached in Jerusalem, and then Jesus' name has expanded to being preached in all Judea and Samaria. Now in phase two of the spread of the gospel, we've met a couple of new characters, original deacons in Jerusalem, uh, who grew to be gospel heralds, Stephen and Philip. These were the agents initially to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria. And yet in Luke's overarching narrative, He's really focused our attention, and will continue to do so, on two primary gospel servants, 
Peter and Paul, or as Paul is known to us thus far in this book, Saul of Tarsus. And while the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the apostle to the Gentiles, is going to set the stage for the next advance of the gospel, taking the word of Christ to the ends of the earth, Luke now moves from Saul of Tarsus back to the apostle Peter, who will actually take the gospel outside the bounds of Judea and Samaria to Gentile regions. It's a good reminder here that Peter and Paul don't have different gospel missions. Peter preaching exclusively to Jews, Paul preaching exclusively to Gentiles. No, they both preached to Jews and to Greeks. And as the gospel makes its progress among both Jews and Greeks, that progress is accompanied by signs of divine power. Now, as we saw repeatedly in the gospels, these acts of power or miracles are not primary. The miracles only and always point to the word of the kingdom. That the king has come. A new day has arrived. A day of restoration. Of life through the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God has broken in, bringing the last days. The messianic age has arrived where King Jesus is building His church. And these inaugurating signs point to the power of Jesus, even as Peter will be the agent of healing in our passage, the text still screams, look at Jesus. See Jesus' power. Jesus reigns. Jesus overcomes the curse. All hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see Jesus' work in Peter, we're going to note two things in our text in these two miracle stories. First, we're going to see the lame walk. Verses 32 to 35. Now, in our previous summary statement, in verse 31, just prior to our text, where Luke was talking about the growth of the church, the grace upon the church, in the midst of rising persecution, the church had spiritual peace in her throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee. And Luke now says, verse 32, as Peter went here and there among them all. And what he's telling us among them all is that Peter is traveling about the various churches in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Peter's home base had been in Jerusalem, but he's moving around all these regions, preaching the gospel, encouraging the churches, and then suddenly one particular Judean city gets his attention, Lydda. Now, verse 32 tells us that Peter traveled to Lydda. He came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Lydda is about 23 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And you might be wondering about the coming down language. If it's up there, why is it coming down? Where they're thinking about elevation. From the hills around Jerusalem, something like 2,600 feet or so, He's going down towards the Mediterranean coast and he comes to this city. It's north, but it's going down. Lydda is about 11 miles away from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And we haven't heard a thing in this book about Lydda before. But somehow, the gospel is there. Now remember, Luke has been selectively reporting the spread of the gospel. We don't get all the details of gospel progress. But probably what happened 
is when Saul of Tarsus back in chapter 8 started ravaging the church after Stephen had been martyred and people were scattered from Jerusalem into various regions. Believers went to Lydda and carried the gospel. And now there's an established church there to which Peter goes to minister. And the saints in this church, as they're gathered and Peter's among them, Peter encounters a paralyzed man, Aeneas. Now it's likely that Aeneas is already part of the church in Lydda. Unlike the lame man in Acts chapter 3 that Peter and John, you know, they met a lame man on the way and he asked for these alms. And you remember the children's song? They held out his palms, right? He, they would preach the gospel to that man, but we don't even know his name. He's not connected initially to the church. This guy seems to be different. We know his name. He's Aeneas. And then Luke tells us about the man, the severity of his affliction. He had been bedridden for eight years. He wasn't lame from birth like the man in Acts 3, but some eight years ago, for reasons unspecified, paralysis seized him. Does it make you want to ask questions? Was he injured at work? Did he have a nerve disease? Did he have a stroke? What happened? We don't know. But when you hear this report and the, the terse condition or terse statement of his condition, try to imagine the day-to-day life of this man. Now, why should you do that when you read miracle stories? Because every miracle of healing, whether it be healing of disease or driving out demonic possession, everyone is telling us of overcoming the horrors of the curse. These physical maladies also serve as evidences of our greater problem. Sin and its ravaging in the soul leading to death. So whether we look at a case of leprosy or a man who's demon-possessed or someone blind or someone deaf, in every case what we're seeing is man's fundamental nature as ruined and broken by the fall. That he's separated from God. His spiritual condition is such that he's blind to the light of Christ, deaf to the gospel of Christ, and he has a disease of sin, Isaiah will put it, from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. He's nothing but raw, oozing wounds of sin. But you love how the Bible gets very specific about how horrible it is. Obviously, not every sinner is paralyzed. But this paralysis is emblematic of our spiritual state. Brethren, by nature, we're dead in sin. We're dominated by corrupt desires. We're in bondage to the devil and we're doomed to destruction in ourselves. We can't make a movement toward the Lord on our own. And do you remember how the Bible will describe this, whether it be David in the Psalms or the Apostle Paul? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek for God. All have turned aside. The spiritual situation is hopeless in us where none does good, not even one. Well, this man's body displays the weakness, the spiritual weakness that we all possess. So imagine him with no power over his frame. He can't sit up. He can't take himself to the bathroom. He can't feel the earth under his feet. He can't reach out his hand to take a cup of water. He is totally dependent on others to feed him, to carry him, 
to change him. He's trapped in a body that's withering away where his muscles are atrophying and his nerves don't function. If you think of it that way, maybe you can resonate with a a famous saying of the ancient Greeks that the body is a tomb. Recognizing that the body is just wasting away and we long for deliverance. And yet, there he is, Aeneas, among the saints who lived at Lydda. And Peter, verse 33, found this man named Aeneas. This bedridden man, in a way that we're not told, it seems, has believed the Gospel. And he's among the people of God. He's physically wrecked, but he's spiritually alive. He's seen that the paralysis of his body is not his biggest problem. His biggest problem is that he's bound for hell lest Jesus save him. And he's turned in his weakness to the Lord. But not only has Jesus given this man new life, Jesus, through Peter, is now going to give him another gift. Verse 34, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Now this miracle loudly echoes a moment early in the ministry of Jesus where Jesus was in the city of Capernaum in a home and there were some guys trying to bring their friend, a paralytic, to Jesus and couldn't get to him. You remember what they did? They climbed up. Wouldn't this be fun in the middle of a sermon? They raised the roof. They they dug through the roof and lowered Him down. And Jesus sees their desperation to get to Him. He sees their faith and He says to that man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. But then to prove that the Son of Man did have authority on earth to forgive sin, without praying, without calling on the Father at all, Jesus said, I say to you, pick up your mat and go home. Rise up and walk. Now note, brethren, the striking difference in what Peter says here and what Jesus had said. Peter doesn't say, I say to you, as though he had the power to heal in himself. Peter's just a man. Yes, he's an apostle, but everything he does is by the power of the, of the living Christ. So he says, following the leading of King Jesus, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. The Lord Jesus may be exalted and enthroned in heaven, but He isn't absent or inactive. Jesus is intervening in this world. This book is called Acts. It should be called the Acts of the Risen Christ by the Holy Spirit in the Apostles. That's a long title. But that's what's going on. And you see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is authenticating His Word. These powerful signs show Jesus reigns. And they show that Jesus' message is the truth. In fact, these signs show that the messianic kingdom is not simply off in the distant future. It's not something we're hoping to see just one day. No, the kingdom has arrived. It's not yet here in fullness. But the last days have dawned. Indeed, the background of this miracle is Isaiah chapter 35. You you probably couldn't quote it, but maybe it's a text you'll remember when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his friends to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? 
Jesus quotes Isaiah 35 with a little sprinkling of Isaiah 26 and 61. Go back and tell John this. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. What does it mean? It means the power of King Jesus, the kingdom of God, is here overthrowing the curse. But who's overthrowing the curse here in Acts 9? It isn't Peter. Peter isn't the king of the kingdom, crushing the serpent's head, destroying the devil's works. The king is Jesus. Aeneas, Jesus Christ, heals you. Dear friends, if we are to have the curse overthrown in us, so that we go from a state of spiritual paralysis to fellowship with the living God, it will only be because of Jesus. Jesus subdues us to Himself. Jesus sets us free. Jesus is alive and working. Jesus takes our formerly far-off souls and He brings us near that we would walk worthily of the Lord. And the effectual power of Christ is seen right here because Peter speaks the name of Jesus and the healing intention of Jesus, no doubt. And then into verse 34, what happens? Immediately, Aeneas rose. There was no delay. There was no slow building return of movement. He didn't have to be sent to the Shepherd Center in Atlanta to work on it for a while before his movement was reestablished. It was instantaneous. In other words, the healing wasn't partial. It was full and complete so that Aeneas could make his bed, that is, roll up his mat, the mat on which he would lay. And do you understand, Jesus is not telling him, like, you know, clean up your room. Or Peter isn't saying, clean up your room, pick up your stuff. He's saying, you now have the ability to do things that you could never do before. You can stand. You can bend over. You can use your arms to roll up a mat. This is glorious liberation. And the miracle, as so often happens, creates an occasion to tell of the work of Christ. Verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, the Sharon is the Sharon Valley in which Lydda is located. So the people in the town and outside the town, they saw this man, Aeneas, who's been healed, and then they turned to the Lord. How did they turn to the Lord? Well, obviously, though we're not given the details, Peter was preaching that this healing happened through the Lord Jesus Christ and he called people to turn, that's a repentance word, to turn to the Lord. Peter has used that word multiple times, but specifically in, in chapter 3 with the healing of the lame man. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Go a new direction. And that's what these people did. They heard of the power of Christ. They left their sin and turned to Christ. Unlike so many people in Capernaum who saw Jesus' miracle that day, while the scribes were grumbling, who does this man think he is that he has the authority to forgive sins? None of them turned and believed. These people turn and believed. They see the power of King Jesus and they turn to Him. Brother, that same power is operative right now. And if there's a question in your soul as to whether or not you're in right standing with God, turn to the risen Christ and find your sins washed away. Now, if you come to Jesus, does that mean that everyone who trusts in Christ will have their present earthly afflictions vanish? 
No, Jesus didn't heal every sick person, every diseased person He encountered. But this physical healing is a harbinger, a picture of the power to heal the greater problem, the problem of sin. And if one turns to the Lord, if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved. But brethren, we just don't have the hope of present rescue from sin. That is, its effects in the body. This miracle shows us the overcoming power of Christ to reach down into the depths of sin and the ruin it causes in the soul. The day will come, Isaiah chapter 35, when the desert will blossom. There will be streams in the desert when everlasting joy will crown our head, when nothing unclean will be seen, when every lame person will walk, when all sorrowing and sighing will flee away. And while we long for that day, the day of the fullness of the redemption of our bodies, showing us the curse is gone forever, we're seeing already the curse being driven out of us. And it makes us groan for the day to come, doesn't it? But how is the curse being overcome? Through Jesus, but specifically through the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. All hail the power of Jesus' name. And may this miracle, brethren, move us to rejoice in the Lord, to see that He's working. He's touching sinners and rescuing people. And His Word, His promise is unbreakable. But then see with me, not only do the lame walk, the dead live. Verses 36 and following. Luke now changes the scene for us and we move from about a little over 10 miles inland to the coastal town on the Mediterranean, Joppa. Now we get no sense of time as the scene changes, though men going to Lydda to get Peter to bring him to Joppa means it was a pretty quick move. Now, we're not conscious of this, but as Peter goes to Joppa, he is now moving outside of Judean territory. He is entering a Gentile town. And this is the first installment of an emerging Gospel to the Gentiles theme that we're going to see first with Peter and then in spades with the Apostle Paul. King Jesus is making His Gospel go just as He said, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And while I've mentioned this point before, the fact that the Gospel is moving outside of Jewish or loosely connected to Jewish regions like the Samaritans, this moment should not be lost on us who are thousands of miles away from Jerusalem and also an ocean away. Why are we Gentiles so far off from where Jesus did ministry? Why are we now worshipers of Christ? Why have we been brought near? Because King Jesus is overthrowing the curse. Adam and Eve were told at the beginning, fill the earth and subdue it. That clearly meant that man's intended realm of dominion was to be the earth. But then they ruined it in sin. And the darkness of sin was everywhere and death had dominion. But then the last Adam... The God-man, Jesus Christ, came. He overthrew the dominion of death. And now Jesus is extending His reign from pole to pole, as we sang already. It's like a tsunami is let loose at the earthquake of Jesus' victory on the cross. And the waves are going out carrying the Gospel. 
Brethren, the Old Testament anticipated this day when the nations would see the root of Jesse and turn to him. This is a last days phenomenon. And yet it's happening right here in Acts chapter 9 as the gospel goes to Joppa and it's still happening with us. Well, look at the fulfillment of God's word. See how the Lord is going to add to his church those of every nation, tongue, and tribe. We'll come to Joppa and we meet, verse 36, a disciple named Tabitha in Aramaic or Dorcas in Greek. Both mean deer or gazelle, in case you're wondering. And the reason for the two names is because this is a port city and Tabitha or Dorcas would have had interactions with both Jews and Greeks with her business. It's also the town Joppa where Jonah caught a boat to go the wrong way. It's a town known to be a great town of sin, and yet what's going on here? There's a woman who was a disciple of the Lord. There are other disciples of the Lord. Luke hasn't told us anything about the gospel going to Joppa, but clearly it has. Unknown characters have carried the name of King Jesus to the Gentiles in this place. And while Luke is focusing our attention in Acts on Peter's works and Paul's works, don't you see there are countless servants of the Lord Jesus Christ who are talking of the friend of sinners and gossiping the gospel? You don't have to be a famous preacher to do significant things in the kingdom of God. You just need to take the gospel to people wherever you go. And while the world may never know your name and we may never read of you in the annals of church history, the Lord knows your name. The Lord knows what you're doing. He's using insignificant servants to spread the gospel of Christ. So there's a church in the city. And then we meet specifically the situation with Tabitha or Dorcas. Now she was a woman, not just in name, but in deeds. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She became ill and died. Her body was washed according to custom and laid in an upper room. And Tabitha's death apparently happened in close proximity to the healing that Peter did in the other city, in Lydda. And the word was spreading. And it builds some anticipation in these people. Let's go get Peter and bring him here that he may not just cause a layman to walk, that he may raise the dead. They seem to expect it. So they go and they get him and they say, verse 38, please come without delay. Now their zealous appeals and Peter's immediate departure gives us another echo of Jesus' own ministry. The day when a synagogue official named Jairus come to see Jesus because his little girl was near death. And Jesus goes with the man. And on the way, they get a report while Jesus is healing this woman with a flow of blood that your daughter has died. The friends from his house who don't seem like good friends say, your daughter's dead. That's the way they deliver the news. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus says death is not an obstacle to His power. He tells Jairus, fear not, only believe. This scene is similar, but different. Dorcas has already died. But these disciples believe that death can be overcome. How do they believe that? Because they believe in the resurrected Christ. They believe death doesn't have the last word. So they go in hope and they get Peter and Peter comes. He's then shown the upper room where Dorcas's body lay. He meets the widows weeping for this woman. They're telling him of the tunics and garments that she had made. 
it appears that these widows are saying, Dorcas has been kind to us specifically. Her good works are evident. Now, I don't think they're trying to make an argument. She's worthy for you to do a miracle. She's good enough that you might act for her. They're just talking about the kindnesses this woman performed for their benefit. And I I want you to stop and ponder that just for a second. When we die and people are gathered around in grief, will they be able to point to the fruit of our faithfulness? Will there be striking evidence that we were people of the gospel because we were zealous for good works? Are we living so as to be missed? None of us are indispensable, of course. The Lord can use anyone to do good deeds for the sake of His people. But do our lives leave a lasting mark? Lives of good works. Lives of fruit that endures. Jesus has taught His people that we are saved to be zealous for good works. We've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. Are we doing them? Are we loving the people of Christ? Are we giving ourselves in devotion to serve Christ and to be a blessing to His church? That was the life of this woman Dorcas. And after hearing the widow's talk of Dorcas and her labors, similar to the scene with Jesus at Jairus' house actually, Peter, verse 40, put them outside. Now, when Jesus did that, it was because of a whole host of other reasons. There were gathered mourners who weren't really sincere in their grief. And he said, the child's only sleeping. And they laughed at him and he kicked them out. Their unbelief, their evil. That's not the issue here. This is actually similar to Elijah in 1 Kings 17 with the widow of Zarephath's son who had died, laid in an upper room. Peter, it seems, much like Elijah had gone to God and requested in prayer, in a private prayer, Peter seems to be doing the same thing. For after putting them out, notice what he does. He knelt down and prayed, and then turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Now again, brethren, note the difference between Elijah and Peter and the Lord Jesus. When Jesus walked into the room where Jairus' daughter lay dead, He didn't kneel. He didn't pray. He took the little girl by the hand and said with memorable Aramaic, Talitha kumi. It must have been so striking that they had to say the words. Talitha kumi means literally little girl or little lamb arise. It's like He was waking her up to go to school. Little lamb arise. How can He do that? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the Lord with power over the grave. Death gets out of Jesus' way. He has power in Himself to drive out death. And doesn't, make, doesn't that make the cross all the more mystifying and shocking? Brethren, Jesus didn't die on the cross because He couldn't overcome death. No, He submitted to death. Jesus said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus laid down His life. He submitted to death that He might die for us to pay for our sin. But even when He submitted to death, death couldn't hold Him because He's the the conqueror of the grave. Well, Peter doesn't have power over death. 
He's only Jesus' ambassador. Crushing the grave is not within Peter's power. So unlike Jesus, what does Peter do? He prays. And it's not explicitly stated, but no doubt he calls upon the power of Jesus to heal Tabitha. It's only by the power of Christ that life can come to her. He's praying for resurrection power. And again, while King Jesus is raised in glory, Jesus is pleased to answer prayer. Jesus is pleased to show His might and authenticate His message and raise the dead. So resting in Christ and calling out to Christ, He then commands in Jesus' name, Tabitha, arise. And what happens? Verse 40. We read this as though, oh yeah, that's just what happened in the next verse. Can you imagine this? Tabitha, arise. And somebody comes back from the dead. She opens her eyes and she saw Peter and she sat up. Peter extends his hand to help her up. And then he calls in the saints and the widows and he presented her alive. Once again, the power of Christ has prevailed. And the very language that Peter has used, both with the paralytic in the previous scene, take up your mat or arise, he said, and this remarkable rising with Tabitha, the word arise has been used to talk about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There is a clear linguistic echo. Now, why? What's the point? The point is this. The resurrection power of Jesus isn't limited to Jesus' resurrection. None of us are walking around expecting that one of us is going to die and then another one of us is going to raise the dead. That's not how we're thinking of things. We recognize that these apostolic signs were for the apostolic age. However, what does, over the, what does overcoming the curse look like? It looks like resurrection. And dear friends, the Apostle Paul will tell us in Corinthians that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Just as in Adam we all die, in Christ we shall all be made alive. And resurrection power has already come to the believer because we were dead in sin and what has happened to us? We've been spiritually raised. But the day is coming even beyond what we see here with Dorcas. She's raised bodily, but she's going to die again. That's the hard reality. But the day is coming, brethren, when our bodies will be laid in the grave never to die again. The day is coming when King Jesus will return and we will put off weakness and put off perishability and we'll be raised in the power of Christ and alive forever with Jesus. This miracle is saying to you, the resurrection of Christ is not a fairy tale. This is not a fantasy. The valley of dry bones will come to pass just as the Spirit gave life to Jesus' body, so the Spirit of God will give life to our mortal bodies. The Word of Christ is true. So brethren, are we looking at death with new eyes? You know, death is that great feared foe. But with the eyes of faith, even in this realm where we're still dying, raised spiritually, dying physically, we can say, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? For death has been swallowed up in victory through our risen and reigning Lord. Well, with Dorcas alive, the saints gathered around her, no doubt rejoicing. It too leads to an advancement of the gospel. Miracles aren't done just to show off Jesus' power. They proclaim a message. Turn to Christ. 
And again, as with the previous miracle, that's what happens. Verse 42, this became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. If you remember one of the last great signs Jesus did before Passion Week is He was near Jerusalem in the area of Bethany and He went to see a friend who was sick who had died. Lazarus. And Jesus went to the tomb there and He said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus was raised from the dead. And how did the Jews respond to that miracle? They wanted to kill not just Jesus, but Lazarus. What did He do? They want to kill them. There's such hatred of Christ and such a blindness to His work that they have murderous rage against Christ Himself and then the man who is the object of the miracle. Do you see the difference here? This woman is raised from the dead and many, many believed in the Lord. Jesus once told His disciples in the upper room, you will do greater works than these. And you probably wonder, how, how are they going to do greater works than Jesus? Here's the way in which they do greater works. They can't do more miracles than Jesus. But they're seeing a greater response to the miracles. And many now are turning to the Lord. The miracle didn't leave people stupefied and still in their sin. Gentiles are now coming in droves to Christ for salvation. And surely that's the response that we should have. That we would believe in the life-giving Savior, the only one who can take the fangs out of death's jaws and rip them out. Because with Jesus Christ, death is not to be feared. It can be overcome with a simple command, arise. Now i got news for you this morning, brethren. We're all dying. But are we going to our physical deaths knowing that we're already awake spiritually? And the day will come when the voice of the Son of God will sound through the heavens and those who hear will live. May we look forward and hope to such a day because the curse is being crushed by our Savior. Let's pray together. Well, Lord our God, we come and we marvel at the greatness of Your power exercised through Your apostles. We thank You that You confirm to us that Your Word is the truth. We thank You, O Lord, that we can see evidence of Your overcoming power as You snatch sinners from the curse. Lord, we pray that it would only stir in our heart a present hopefulness that we're already alive with Christ. And as Jesus said, those who believe in Him shall never die. Lord, we are possessors of everlasting life, and may we live with the joy of knowing Christ our Savior who has given life to us. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.